to our rational radio for today uh, we have got as you can see on screen uh, two good-looking gents uh, Wilhelm Herzog and uh, Mark Ingham I'll give you more information on them in a moment and uh, before we forget to tell you that our special CEO guest today is Charles Savage um, Stuart Bailey uh, Stuart Bailey <laughs> Stuart Lohman yeah too much long weekend line talk. Uh, yeah, line talk I was out in the northern in the far north with good friends this weekend there weren't too many lions but uh, <laughs> thankfully but there were uh, lots of relaxation but Stuart Lohman our general manager is with me in studio um, he can put on his put on your camera so they can see that you actually yes Stu. There we go. Okay. Uh, and uh, he'll take us through the tech uh, just to make sure that everybody can hear us Excellent. and uh, and they know and then you know also how to pose your questions, Stu. Excellent. Thanks, Ali. Um, just on the control panel on your right, on the right hand side of your screen, there's a little half five button. If you can hear my voice loud and clear and see four gentlemen pictures in front of you and his presentation. Excellent, Alec. We've got some half fives coming through. That's lovely. And um, we do like to keep it conversational. And Alec likes the questions. If you can get them in quite early. That always helps. There's a little questions uh, drop down on that same control panel. Please put your questions in there as early as possible, and then Alec can pass them on as we go through the hour discussion. But all good this side, Alec. Brilliant. Okay, so the questions will be uh, posed there. Stuart will pick them up. In fact, you know what? I'm going to mute you, Stuart. Okay, and uh, I'll pick up the questions easy enough to see. And uh, just to, to um, set the scene a little bit, uh, Wilhelm, you've, we've known each other for some years. Uh, you were the partner at uh, at RCM with Pitfulion. Are you still very much a, a value investor? Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, look, value investing. Everyone likes to call themselves a value investor, and uh, everyone wants to buy assets for a price below fair value, and that's what uh, everyone tries to do. So I think value investing has a connotation of buying low PE, low price to book, high dividend yield stocks. Uh, we do like to take a bit more of a flexible view of value than just that. But certainly, fundamentally, at Rosenal Partners, myself, my colleague Paul Whitburn, we try to buy assets for less than they're worth. But I guess what an asset is worth is like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder. And that's really where the, the art and the judgment comes in. But certainly, would still unequivocally call myself a value investor today, yes. And also very independent, independent thinking. Uh, and that's well, why we we so good to so good to have you on the show today. <laughs> well, look, I don't think there are there's much original thought really in in life and in the world out there. Most of what goes through as original thought is something which someone has thought of before. But certainly, like well, as a firm, like to be independent, like to call it almost speak truth to power if one wants to put it that way, and uh, really go with the facts and the evidence as opposed to just the the intuition and the and the, the the sentiment and the flavor of the day. That's certainly how we how we invest money. We think that independent thought and being able to distance yourself from the crowd that really is key to long-term investing success. So we've really set up our firm, Rosenwald Partners, in a way to uh, encourage that and to facilitate that because it is often very difficult in the investment management industry because of career pressures, because of client pressures to really 
do the rational thing in times where others are irrational and where irrational behavior seems to be rewarded. So uh, we think it's critical to have the right firm structure to facilitate the correct frame of mind and the clarity of thought that is required for long-term investment results. Well, someone who's been around uh, in the long term and we've, uh, oh, I think we've known each other for a quarter of a century easily um, is Mark Ingham. Lovely to have you on the program today, Mark. Uh, we will be talking in a little while with Charles Savage, and I, I know you know Easy Equities pretty well, but you've, you're on your own now, and uh, Ingham Analytics, uh, a, a independent research house. How is it going? Are you getting support from the public? Yes, we've, uh, we, we launched uh, last year, Alec, and uh, it was uh, two steps forward and three steps back. Um, I think, as with all these things, um, but uh, we've got a, a growing following. Um, it's a paid-for research with a difference. We believe in easy sort of accessibility, and I think that speaks to Charles's methodology as well. Uh, and then uh, my full-time job is uh, running funds for a family office uh, around the world. The Labner Group. Our dear friend, uh, uh, late friend Bertie Labner, and uh, the huge work that he did in South Africa. And it's nice to see that uh, the money is in good hands because <laughs> with Africa Tikkun, there's a there's a a, a big uh, lots of feed, uh, lots of mouths to feed, thousands and thousands of of mouths to feed. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that uh, you get quite involved in that side as well, Mark. We try and keep a division of labour. So the investment side. Uh, which is Ludman, is a separate uh, company from Africa to Kun. And, and so we, we, we look at specifically at listed and non-listed assets in the family office environment. Uh, so my focus is principally there. The, the ethos, as you well know, to Kun, uh, Alec, is, is, is very much a hand up rather than a hand out. And I think that, that sort of philosophy is very important. Uh, particularly in a country like South Africa with so many challenges. Um, and the, the self-help ethos, uh, I think, is uh, very um, uh, useful there. And I think that organization particularly is doing sterling work. And there's a template, I think, for um, other organizations of that type working within a family office environment. Clearly, a family office, and um, Wilhelm will, will know this very well, uh, you're multi-generational, so you're not looking at making a quick buck today. And, and clearly, common sense, uh, a lot of in-depth research, uh, proper analysis, and not getting carried away by the crowd um, is quite important, especially at a time like this in overseas markets, and particularly in the United States, uh, where you scratch your head as to where people get the valuation numbers that they do these days. Um, so so we, we tend to look through the noise. We've been doing quite a bit of work on the uh, US RPOs, Snowflake, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I don't know if you guys have come across this uh, new concept of uh, check-based companies. So in other words, some clever guy sets up a shell company and you just send them the check. And there's been hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone to these guys in the anticipation that they are going to find companies somewhere else that they can invest in and then bring them into that shell, which is extraordinary. Wilhelm, it, it sounds a little bit like a, a bubble type philosophy, but I'm sure there must be some logic to it. Well, 
I guess uh, it is probably a sign of where we are in the cycles, in market cycles in the US, that uh, these special purpose acquisition companies, uh, as they're often referred to, is, are managing to raise such vast amounts of money. And then companies are essentially reverse listing into these vehicles and thereby bypassing many of the typical checks and balances and corporate governance requirements that is uh, imposed on companies when they list via the traditional IPO route. So it's sort of a, it seems to be a bit of a backdoor way for companies with questionable corporate governance, but who are in high demand amongst the investment public to get a listing. And sure, there will be some of these SPACs raised by reputable uh, investors and great capital allocators who will find the great deals and they will no doubt be great successes, but there will obviously be a great deal of uh, unscrupulous operators trying to take the investment public for a ride through these vehicles. And it's quite interesting that you mentioned them because we, of course, in South Africa have our fair share of these types of businesses listed on the JC as well. There are numerous, I mean, in South Africa, we call them investment trusts or, uh, and we think of, I mean, there are numerous examples. And in South Africa, almost bar none, they're trading at deep discounts to the value of the underlying assets. We own a number of those in our client portfolios. Um, and this is sort of the mirror image of what one sees in the US where people are willing to give, um, uh, where investors are willing to give operators and, and capital raisers vast amounts of money, and even sometimes I'm sure pay a premium to the underlying NAV for access to these investments that these companies are making. In South Africa, I mean, people can't give the shares of investment trusts away, and, uh, and no matter how good the underlying assets are, they through the bank, they're trading at deep discounts. So really, almost the polar opposite of what one sees in the US is what we're facing in South Africa. It might suggest that there's an opportunity there, Mark, because what happens in America, uh, if America gets the sniffles, we get pneumonia, maybe we will get uh, pick up on this uh, this trend and then these cash shells or these shells with the, uh, that are trading at deep discounts will start realizing their, at least their fair value. Yeah, we've, we've uh, had similar experience before with what are referred to as SPAC, special purpose sort of, uh, companies where you, it's effectively a cash shell um, and you're given two years uh, in which to deploy that cash sort of productively or you give it back. Um, so this is um, a variation on a theme. Um, we've had one or two in South Africa, they haven't gained traction terribly much. Capital appreciation was a more recent one where they managed to acquire tech assets uh, within that uh, window. Um, and those assets are very interesting and I think over time will uh, do well. Um, but um, sadly, as, as we see with many smaller cap companies uh, in South Africa, I was looking at the figures just over the weekend, our JSC is up about 20%, is down 20% of US dollars, give or take, uh, for the year, and that's thanks only to a handful of mega cap stocks that have little or nothing to do with the South African economy. Uh, and you know, Charles is a very good example of this, where you've got excellent companies that are unloved. Uh, and and so the challenge in the JSE environment, uh, where many stocks have probably become uninvestable uh, due to these factors uh, that have just been mentioned. Um, I think if we did get confidence returning and a line of sight on the future, particularly in a governmental policy environment, um, then, you know, this is a very good vehicle uh, for that. And it does entice those who are entrusted with those funds, uh, hopefully to put them to good use um, 
and, and therein lies the challenge in a, in a low to no growth economy. Surely though, Wilhelm, um, before we pick up with Charles Savage from uh, Purple Group and best known as Easy Equities, uh, their operating arm or one of their operating arms, surely if you take a Buffett approach towards the South African market and you close it down for five years, you don't worry about the big picture, you look at the individual companies, if they're trading at huge discounts, and you, the biggest of them all, NASPAS, which is trading at a 50% discount, just to its 10 cent shareholding, let alone everything else that it has around the world, then you would think in five years time, you'd be a happy person. Uh, I tend to agree with that. Obviously it uh, depends on where South Africa finds itself in five years time, because I think as value investors in South Africa, many have had their fingers burnt over the past five years by investing in SA Inc type of businesses, where valuations have been cheap for a good number of years, I would say, if you look at headline valuations, price to NAV, PE ratios, that type of thing. Yet South Africa's macroeconomic environment has been so diabolical that it's uh, that this value really hasn't had a chance to, uh, to rise to the surface. It's just been so tough for South African domestically focused businesses to uh, make headway in terms of profitability and growth that Effectively, these assets were value traps. Um, if one bought them three years ago or thereabouts at what already looked like low prices at the time. So I would on balance agree with what you say that, yes, if the South African market closes down for five years and you buy these assets that on balance you do well. But one does require the SA economy not to uh, call it go dramatically backwards from where we are today. We need some measure of leveling out or bottoming out or conditions to stabilize. Uh, otherwise, it will potentially still be a case of value caps being bought today. And very, very few exponential companies on the JSC, and that's where all the action is happening if you uh, dig down into the US markets. But one potential exponential company, and certainly they have been growing in this way, is uh, in focus today. And uh, Charles Savage is the chief executive and founder of Easy Equities. Uh, Charles, I'm going to just switch your, uh, I think uh, maybe Stuart can just switch, uh, well, let's just, let's switch on your camera. Okay, there you are. Good to see you. Uh, and uh, also uh, very good to be talking on this forum, not about horse racing, Charles, because that was what we were chatting about uh, to a large degree last time. Um, that whole story, the Pumalela story, uh, now does seem to have settled down, so we won't go into too much detail there. But I was just looking through your CV, and you can see it on screen there, that you've, you're have you a bit of a, a, a sticker. Uh, and you started Global Trader 26 years later. Um, that is still part of your business. Then you started Easy Equities in 2014, and you're still there. Is there nothing else that interests you outside of financial markets and horse racing? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you added in the horse racing. So nothing outside of horse racing and financial markets. Um, from a business perspective. Yeah, I am a sticker, and I think I found a great marriage between my love for technology and my love for finance in the group. Uh, and I think, you know, importantly, coupled with shareholder grouping that really just inspired me and backed me to do things differently. So once you find those kind of places and you find your passion, then it's very, uh, very likely that you're going to stay for a long time. Uh, Mark and Wilhelm, can you hear Charles clearly enough? Uh, reasonably well. There was a bit of a breakup, but it's okay. 
Okay. All right. Well, let, let's just go into the whole exponentiality uh, aspect of uh, easy equities. And maybe before we get there, 2019, you were looking to change the name of the company, Purple Capital, to easy equities. What happened there, Charles? Because I see there was a circular. It's still on your site. Uh, are you still in the process of doing that? Yeah, I think what happened was that there there wasn't a natural fit between what was GT247.com and the Easy Equities Group. And I think, you know, for people to understand the two businesses, one is a speculative day trading uh, business and has been around for a long time. And, and uh, you know, everyone knows what it does. But that business, 80% of its customers uh, lose money, 20% of them make enough to you know keep their heads above water and a very small percentage one or two percent actually make considerable money out of day trading and it's always been um at loggerheads to the principles or the mission easy equities i mean easy equities is an investment platform charles we're losing you uh holding i think we, we're going to switch your video off just to make sure that we can actually hear you Charles? No. <clears throat> it sounds like the bandwidth in your home is uh, is is under a bit of pressure at the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. We switched off your video. Uh, perhaps that'll yeah. help a little. Uh, yeah. It should it should be better. Okay. Then, Keep going. Yep. Sorry, man. I, I don't know what's happened. Um, yeah, so it really was just about the fact that, that GT247 uh, doesn't fit comfortably into the easy equity storyline and the purpose of that business. And so we've sort of reflected on whether or not that should be a long-term part of the group. And until we've, we've thought about that more holistically, we postponed the name change uh, until we've made that decision. Great. Uh, something else, and I, I was looking through here at your market cap. Now, I'm not sure if you can see that on the screen. Charles, but it's it's very illustrate uh, uh, indicative. This is a ten-year graph, and it's the market cap of Purple, uh, which shows that you got to around eight hundred million in late twenty fourteen, and then it went all the way down to two hundred million for most of the last three years, and then suddenly you've caught fire. What's going on there? What maybe you can talk us through that because I guess. Investors looking at this are saying, first of all, damn it, we we should have bought the shares during that three-year uh, high uh, doldrum period. But on the other hand, if it's gone up so quickly to 800 million in the past, is it not going to be doing the same thing in future? Maybe you can just give us some context. Yeah, look, I think the storyline of easy equities, which whilst it's been around for almost six years now, hasn't been well understood, uh, and I also to a large extent, think that the average South African investor isn't necessarily a growth investor. So, you know, I think if this was listed in other places like the US or Australia, that it might have got more support earlier. But I think as the numbers have unpacked and as we've told our story every six months through our financials, it's become more and more obvious for people to follow. And as those numbers have you know, surfaced as being exponential, the share price has responded. And that momentum shift really happened into our results in February, where the prospect of profitability uh, suddenly became tangible to, I think, to potential shareholders. 
whereas before the losses were were significant in the context of the size of the group. I mean, if you go back and look at the losses over the last two years, in the context of the size of the market cap of the group, they were sort of 10% of the market cap. Uh, and I guess there might have been a lot of uh, nervous sentiment around the fact that we were, you know, we were we had these large losses uh, against a very small market capitalization. But when it became very clear that we were going to be profitable, and that was it was signaled in our in our February results, I think the market confidence uh, responded positively, and I think people are now seeing a very different future for the group. Um, and I, I would say the final element of it is that the Capitech deal, which we announced post our results, uh, I think gave everyone confidence that the runway for future growth is also very well secured, given the fact that we're going to be entering inside the Capitech banking app and have access to those customers, all of those online mobile customers um, for free, essentially. Well, Helen. Apart from, uh, uh, well, maybe you did buy the shares uh, around the 20 cent level and now looking at it 70 cents. Um, what's your thought about what Charles has just told us? And maybe you have a question. I mean, it sounds very exciting. Uh, I think this partnership with Capitec, certainly the broad reach of Capitec uh, in terms of their client base and, and all that, definitely, I think, would, to me as an outside investor, and I'm I know Purple Group somewhat, but I'm not intimately familiar with the business. I mean, it certainly sounds sounds exciting. And I think the discount brokerage model and providing cheap access to financial services for broad swathes of a country's population, that has historically been a good business model in, in most countries. So I can certainly see the potential of the business. I think the interesting uh, perspective and challenge, and, and I'd love to hear Charles's view on this, would just be that I think in many countries, and I guess one sees that in the US, uh, discount brokerage models and pricing on discount brokerage platforms have been driven down to almost negligible levels and, and trading is offered for free on many of the prominent and some of the larger platforms. So it does seem to become a race to the bottom longer term. So as a small player with maybe less scale than some of the incumbents in the industry, how does one manage that dynamic of potentially a large, well-funded competitor just throwing caution to the wind and saying, look, we're offering trading for free, uh, come into our arms. How does a, maybe a, a business with a smaller balance sheet deal with that type of scenario should it arise? Yeah, I mean, it's a good insight and good question, Balala. The truth of it is, is that the free trading model, model doesn't work anywhere else but in America. And, there, and, and this is something that, you know, I've, chatted to other fintechs around the world. The difference in America is you have a competitive exchange environment where the flows are valuable to the various exchanges. So whilst you're offering free bro brokerage, you can sell your flows to high frequency traders and to the exchange and onto the exchanges. So you are, whilst you, you know, it's free, someone's getting paid for that flow. Those models don't exist outside of America. Um, there are pockets of it, but they're not mature and they're not liquid enough to support a platform of the size of, of easy equities. So I don't see that it being a sustainable business model outside of America for now. Um, and, and I do think that those that are trying it outside of America are going to come under their own pressures uh, in terms of creating their own sustainable business model. The secret, though, in providing a low-cost offering is, is in order to be sustainable, you have to have the lowest cost of acquisition for your customers. And that is the key number that everyone you know, needs to, to track and, and measure. And 
for a lot of these fintechs, some of them who compete with us, and I'm talking locally and globally, they haven't been able to drive their cost of acquisition down to the point where the business model is sustainable. The most, the one that I looked at most recently was Acorn. You know, millions of, of customers, cost of acquisition still very high, and revenue that comes from those customers very low. So that they're going to have to get something. They're going to have to change something. They're either going to have to charge more, or you know, radically transform their marketing approach. Now, in easy equities, just to give you some insight, our cost of acquisition. Our target when we started the business was 250 Rand a customer. And to contextualize that against the industry, the average cost of acquisition for a financial services firm in South Africa is around 2,500 Rand a customer. So we backed ourselves into quite a bold um, cost of acquisition, quite a low cost of acquisition. In this financial year, our cost of acquisition was just under 50 Rand, 49 Rand a customer. Now, given that, that cost of acquisition, the ability for us to generate a return from our customers in a very short period of time is substantially uh, increased. And the problem a competitor will have is that, yes, you can come in and you can try a zero-cost brokerage. But if you don't get your cost of acquisition right, then you won't create a sustainable business model. Now, the secret in our business model is how do we, how do we create this low cost of acquisition? And... It's all in the fact that all of our customers, well, not all of them, 60% of our customers come from other customers. So it's all referral business. And we've created a brand that South Africa's fallen in love with in a very short period of time. And that can't be replicated by either money, you know, throwing marketing money at it, uh, or two, technology. A lot of people have said to me, Charles, if I gave you 200 million, could you recreate the business? And the truth is I wouldn't even try because there's some magic in what we're doing that is demonstrably evidenced in this love that our customers have for the brand and the business, which has created this huge wave of referral business, which keeps us growing faster and faster each year because it is a snowball rolling downhill, that I think locks out the competitive threat uh, to a large extent. It's not to say that it doesn't exist. And I'm not trying to be arrogant to say that you know we're not going to get competitors, but it does significantly widen the moat for anybody else who needs to enter the market um, because it isn't just about technology and it isn't about just about the cost. We charge a fair price for our services, not free. And everything we do is about ensuring that the barriers to entry for first-time investors is fairly proportioned, whether you're a million rand investor or a one rand investor. So for me, low cost or the lowest cost is not a defendable differentiator. And some of the business models that are deploying them are going to go under. Many more are going to go under than are going to succeed, in my view. And so for us, you know, we don't, we're focusing on ensuring accessibility and fairness of, of, the, of the price or the cost of investing uh, is, 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 you know, managed. And then most importantly, that our customers love us and keep referring their friends and family, because the more they do that, the faster we grow. Charles, before uh, um, I ask Mark to pose his question, I'll just put this up on screen because I'd love to get an update from you. This is from your annual report to end August 2019. Uh, you did bring out interim uh, numbers, which showed that that funded investment accounts, that number of 111,000, went up to just under 200,000. Or uh, That was before the Capitec deal. Where are you sitting now? Yeah, so funded investment accounts is 272,000, somewhere there. 
um, across the platforms. And that is pre, I mean, Capitec hasn't gone live. So Capitec will go live in October. Um, our current acquisition rate is roughly about a thousand customers a day. Interestingly, during COVID, um, and it's obviously still in COVID, but lockdown COVID, if you like, we were, those numbers were up at 2,000 customers a day. So people definitely had more time on their hands to do these kinds of things. But pre-COVID, so into our results end of February, those numbers were three, 400 a day. So essentially what you've seen in the, in the group is that it had extraordinary growth in COVID, which has resulted in what I would say is a sustainable growth rate now without Capitech. That is more than double what we were growing at in February. So, you know, we've experienced exponential growth in a six month period, and we've still got that, you know, unknown runway of what will Capitech produce for the group. Mark? Yeah, Charles, it's interesting. Uh, there's an old joke, it takes years to become an overnight success. And uh, I think um, your results this year will probably be a pleasant surprise for the market, certainly if the half year results are any sign uh, it's making positive uh, uh, momentum. Um, I think, Charles, what, what, what's interesting here is that although one looks at it in a more sort of parochial JSE frame of reference, in fact, what you've created over the last few years is scalable. And you're probably reaching the point now where that scalability becomes global. Um, and I think what's quite interesting is that you've introduced a lot of investors, small investors, to a global market for investing. If I want to buy a gold-backed ETF, uh, I can go onto your platform and I can execute that with relatively little friction. So you've certainly opened up a universe to people, and I would suspect that whether you're based in Johannesburg or Timbuktu, it doesn't really matter. What you have is something that can travel um, and your, uh, your, your costs will not increase um, in relation to that. In other words, revenue is likely to grow at a rate far quicker than your cost of, of, of doing business. Yeah, Mark, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. These businesses are, have got a very high you know, expense, high watermark for expenses. Um, and once you reach them, then the scalability is really, the, you know, the leverage over the cost base. And, you know, we've reached that point now. And the, I guess the question that beckons for shareholders and uh, which I have to direct is what to do now with our profitability. Do we invest it in further growth? Uh, and if we're going to invest in further growth, where does that, where do we want to invest it? In South Africa, in Australia, in the UK, in America, in the rest of Africa. And, you know, if I categorize the, the last five years, it was really about creating a platform that, that, that satisfying a demand for a platform or, in, or the need for the platform, which you know, we can tick that box. The second part of it was to lock out distribution opportunities that gave us a defendable moat over any market entrant. And I've talked about some of that, you know, Capitech's a great example, but we've also got other wonderful partners. I mean, we've, we've, we run the platform for Satrix now, um, and that's our platform, and, and that gives us significant access to quite a different market segment. I mean, the average age of our investors is 32. The average age of their investors is 41. So it marries their brand uh, and our platform capability with a different market segment. Um, and we're not finished locking out distribution. There's, I would say there's one more deal to be done in South Africa. 
and uh, I'm working really hard on that. And that's to lock out a distribution deal with a telco because we think that that's a runway we'd love to run our products along. So I'll, I'll keep focused on that. But the next five years are going to be categorized by where else can we take this platform capability. Um, to start with Australia, and that business is, I mean, I was on a call now just before this, and that business looks set to go live this week. And that's really exciting. The fintech ecosystem there is as uh, competitive as South Africa. But very interestingly, the market setup looks identical to what we found ourselves facing when we entered South Africa. So when we started in South Africa, the largest stockbroker in South Africa by, in retail space was Standard Bank. They purportedly have around 70,000 active accounts. You know, five years later, we've got 270,000 active accounts and, you know, we're the biggest retail. And the same market dynamics are set up in Australia. The biggest uh, stockbroker is a bank. It's Comsec. 70% of all retail stockbroking accounts they own. And we think we can apply some of the lessons here, learned here in, uh, in beating them up in their own market space. The other reason Australia was interesting for us is we see it as a market entry to the rest of Asia. Uh, you can't run Asia from South Africa. The time zone is just too unfriendly. So we want to put a beachhead there, get that business profitable in a very short period of time, and then start targeting other regions. And then the one that I guess excites me the most and speaks the most to why we built Easy Equities is Africa. You know, Africa is an untapped market opportunity. Not all markets are ready for easy equities just yet. But if you look at the ecosystem that we require to do business and our customers require to be in place to do business with us, the first is there must be a there must be low data costs because otherwise the point of investing small amounts is going to be you know dissolved. Second one is that um, there must be access to smartphone capabilities, high penetration of smartphone uh, capabilities, because we don't build services for dumb phones. We're not going to go and spend money on USSD services. Uh, and that again, you know, the market, the penetration of those devices is really high and growing fast. And, the, you know, the first $10 smartphones in the market already. And then the third ingredient, which is the one that is missing in a lot of African markets, the ability to move money electronically must be easy. Because again, if that's not available, then you, you, there's no point trying to create an investment platform that sits on money moving freely. And so for us, the first market entry that we'll go into in Africa, outside of obviously South Africa, is Kenya. It's got all of the ingredients. And for us, the market opportunity is for us is, is to go and take what we've done and see if we can replicate it in places that look more familiar or more similar to South Africa. Um, and for us, the opportunity is Africa. It's right on our back door. It's in our time zone. Um, there's much closer cultural connection between South Africans and the rest of Africa. And we want to do what we've, we've done here elsewhere in Africa. And that's really, really exciting prospect. And then, you know, finally, we will certainly look at, at other jurisdictions. And what's driving us in other jurisdictions is the lack of availability uh, of our kind of financial services. So there is a lot of focus on what I would call first world fintech. There's a lot of places outside of first world that need this, uh, where the need is required. And essentially, we want, we want to go to places where you, know, you need more mosquito, mosquito repellent, where our big first world competitors are almost too scared to go. And when they look up to say, well, where do we go next? We want to make sure we're there. So we're not, you know, you won't find us in the UK and you won't find us in the US, but you might find us in Eastern Europe soon and you might find us in India soon and you might find us in places that people have been, I guess, a little bit cautious um, to go. 
Charles, uh, that all needs money. And when Sunlam came in as a shareholder, it looked like you had the cash to pursue that very aggressive uh, ambition that clearly you have. But I see from your your that the circular that is going to close now at the end of this month that there's something in there about repaying Sunlam. What's going on there? Yeah, when Sunlam um, when Sunlam bought 30% of Easy Equities for 100 million, they put a, they put a protection mechanism in to the deal, which was to protect them against the valuation being wrong. So essentially, you know, you can imagine. Three years ago now, trying to value a business which at the time I think had 10,000 customers was losing 40 million a year, roughly. And how do you put a value, positive valuation on that? So, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, well negotiated outcome, but an uncertain outcome. So in order to protect that valuation entry point, they had the right to give us back the shares and we would have to then uh, pay them the 100 million plus interest if they felt that the business uh, doesn't that didn't have the prospects that it uh, that they believed it had at the time? All the alternative is to the extent that we couldn't repay them the 120 million, then they would get another 10% of shares, essentially lowering their entry price. Now, the in the result, it's quite a they're in quite a sort of shotgun kind of position, in the sense that they have to if they do put it to us. You know, anyone who had the opportunity to invest in easy equities at 100 million rand, 100 million for 30 percent, so sort of 320 million post money valuation, anyone would bite their arms off at doing that. So the likelihood of them exercising that option, I think, is low. But I don't know what they're going to do with it. It, it expires. Uh, the termination date is six months after the 17th of November, um, and they have that right to put those shares to us, but there's no turning around. If they put the shares to us and we raise the capital and pay them back, then they're out. So quite a dangerous game to play if they like the investment. And, you know, Sunlam have been an, a wonderful investor. Um, actually couldn't ask for a better investor. They've given us great access to market. They've helped us build our runway into distribution. And so I think it's a very unlikely event, but, you know, the the reason we have to put the circulator, uh, circulate uh, the circular out is, we have to do the housekeeping as if it may ha as if it is going to occur in case it does occur. So I personally don't think it will occur, but you know time will tell. And then the other reason is that just you know we've only got 1.2 billion of authorized share capital, uh, and we've got obligations in terms of share incentive schemes and also a BE deal that we did two years ago that over the next 12 months are going to require more shares than are available in our authorized share capital. So that was the other reason behind it. Well, Helen? Um, yeah, Charles, I think an interesting aspect of your business is, um, is as you mentioned, that the GT247 and Easy Equities and being sort of two very different businesses. Um, but I, I imagine they were both premised on the same underlying fundamental principle of offering readily available low-cost access to markets. Uh, GT247 has seemingly had its trials and tribulations and is now on the up again after uh, some difficult years. What have you learned from the GT247 business that you carry into uh, running Easy Equities? Or are the two businesses not as uh, as similar as I imagine them to be? You highlighted the differences earlier, but uh, as I said, I think the underlying premise is probably similar or shared, or is that not necessarily the case? 
No, look, I mean, they, they leverage over each other extensively. I mean, the tech, for one, is identical in its in the back office infrastructure and when you're, what's required to run the platform. But the difference, the key difference is that between 7 and 10% of individuals, investors, become traders or, or play both roles. You know, some people are investor and trader. Um, so the market opportunity for GD247 is, you know, one-tenth of the market opportunity that presented, is presented for easy equity. Um, so easy equity has a much greater runway. It therefore has much greater scale requirements in terms of the tech that needs to serve those customers. Um, and the other key difference is the lifetime value of a GT247 customer is time bound by roughly, it's about 13 months. They literally lose their money within that period. So you go out, you're having to replace your customers essentially every year. You've got to go out and build a new client base every year, which is, it's a hamster wheel. It's a tough business. It's for young guys yet much younger than me. But, and in easy, your customer lifetime value is impossible for me to, to, to tell you because I don't know how long 32-year-olds are going to continue investing. If, and, and that's really determined about how long they're going to live and how long we can keep them happy. But it's much longer than 13 months. Um, so... Those are the sort of key differences. The, the question that I guess plagues me and my team is because we are the graduation, we're the university for investing. If we're going to graduate these traders, the seven to 10% or five to 10% of traders, do we stay aligned with GT247 and keep it in the group? Uh, and it will, be, it will naturally benefit from all of these uh, graduate, graduates or do we eventually divorce ourselves from the trading business? There are, it's not a business, we will never be the best in the world at GT. They're just, we missed our time. We were, we were well ahead into 2008, but we got heavily uh, beaten up in 2008 and, and the, the competitors ran past us. And those are places like IG and Saxo and FXCM and a whole lot of others that are just better at it globally than we are. But in easy, we could, be the best in the world at opening up new market, uh, first-time investors and creating a new marketplace for uh, first-time investors. And at some point, the group needs to be focused around a single uh, mission and purpose. It's been fine till now, but I think as we grow and as the demands of easy equities continues to grow, we're going to want to focus more and more of our time on that uh, mission and purpose. So, you know, my belief is that the two businesses will probably end up divorcing. There will be an exit of GT uh, in time. If that's not going to happen, then the business needs to marry it more formally. And then I would do, I would change the brand um, and introduce it at the right time, at the right place for those investors that are seeking a trading destination. And as you can tell from the way I'm talking about it, it's not something we, we're fully baked on. We haven't come to a conclusion on it yet. GT continues to make a very healthy contribution to the group. Uh, we're in no rush to get rid of it. Uh, and you know, it's definitely benefiting from the tidal wave of customers that Easy Equities is bringing. So for now, uh, you know, we'll keep thinking about it and see whether we fall more in love with it and then rebrand it within the group or alternatively look to exit it uh, and pay the dividends after shareholders. We've got quite a lot of questions here from the community, starting with John Hardy. Uh, he wants to know, why are there so many director sales of shares in Purple Group? 
Yeah, I mean, look, you've got to understand that we've been in this. You, you said at the beginning, uh, Alec, we've been in this a long time. Um, and you've got varying degrees um, of, well, you've got varying degrees of, of service amongst the directors. Some of them have been here for a very long time and are also uh, getting older. And so they need liquidity in their shares. And so they'll sell their shares to you know, finance their lives. Which is acceptable. It's not like they, you know, they've been around for a very long time, and and, and that's the real thing that's driving it. Um, the other thing is that even at a management level, uh, the management team have heavily backed themselves into the share, uh, to the extent that you know I'll speak for myself. You know, 99% of everything I own is in purple. That's how much I believe in this group. That means that you know if there are unforeseen events that I need to take care of in my life, then invariably I'm going to have to sell some purple shares. Uh, to finance those, um, and so you know, whilst I wouldn't give that advice to anyone else, you know, I, this is this is my baby. This is my this is what I've created, and I'm confident and and uh, in its future. So I have a very unrealistic distribution uh, into into the share. So it's it's tenure. It's driven by the fact that lots of people, a lot of the directors, have been there for a long time, um, and you know, they need to they need to eat from their shares, and we don't pay dividends right now. And then the other one is that you know. Certainly for myself, I have 99% in the share. And so, you know, sometimes school fees need to be paid, in which case I've got to sell a few shares. Mark? I think what's also disruptive, Charles, and which we haven't touched on, is RISE, which is retirement investment and savings for everyone. And that is very much in the philosophy of what Easy Equities is about. Uh, it's a joint venture. Uh, it, uh, in fact, also seeks to reduce the cost of admin uh, in this area, particularly at a time when markets uh, haven't been going terribly far uh, and when everybody's under cost pressure, um, that ease, ease and cheapness of uh, access uh, is another important pillar of your business and which is already um, um, contributing to the PNL. Yeah, Mark, it's rather a lovely business. Um, if I Use an analogy for the two. You know, Easy Equities is a is a line fisherman. It goes out, throws its lines out every day, and 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 catches uh, a few fish. Rise is a trawler, um, and it goes out, and when it catches fish, it catches them in very large numbers and large asset values. But it takes a long time to hunt those. You know, schools of fish down, and you don't land them all the time. But the, the two businesses are so synergistic because you've got easy equities that's just bringing in you know customers every single day, and then alongside this you've got this longer tail of acquisition which goes out and seeks pension funds and with it their clients, um, and the two work perfectly. We can leverage the technology to deliver the same investment experience, just in the one case through a pension fund administration business, and the other one you know for people who want to manage their investments for themselves. So it's a great example of how we can use the, the platform in other sectors. I think the thing that is potentially worth highlighting, and I, I would say the market needs to watch closely with us, is where else can this platform play a role? If we're building the most valuable distribution base in um, access to customers in South Africa, which I believe we are, um, and that's becoming obvious in the numbers now, then what else what other financial needs and demands can we service to that distribution? And that's a very interesting question. And in the outcome, I think there are lots of product and platform opportunities that will see us leverage this distribution into new profit lines 
And a great example of that is Easy Properties, not just Rise. I mean, Easy Properties was born out of a survey that I did two years ago to my customers, and we said to them, what asset classes are missing? And we thought that crypto was going to be the answer, and it was the second answer. And we, we ended up doing a JV with Michael Jordan and Orloxton Loxton and DCX to give them access to a crypto index, which is also doing really well. But the second one, the, the most uh, in-demand asset was actually residential property. Now, I would never have guessed that, but given the fact that our customers wanted it, and at the same time, fortuitously, we were introduced to the Buffett Group, who are the largest owners of residential property um, in this country. And they came to us with a proposition to say, look, is there a way that we can distribute our properties into your customer base? So we, you know, two years later and probably about four million of capital now invested in that platform. We launched Easy Properties three months ago. To date, it's sold 30 million in property already. Uh, it literally sells out in a week. Last couple of weeks, it sold uh, 12 million of property in a week. And it was EBITDA profitable in its first month because it doesn't have this cost of acquisition. This, you know, it just gets dropped in on the easy equities distribution base. And you know, it's, I would guess that within the next, uh, it, it'll do sort of EBITDA, be EBITDA positive uh, in a full year and between sort of eight and 12 million rand. Now, that's a great example of new product, new service, well aligned with the easy equities brand uh, where demand uh, is proven, i.e. our customers are saying we want this, and we just drop it in. And the thing that I think everyone's got to think about is what else can we do? Um, you know, the things that I'm thinking about is I've got a real problem with the life uh, insurance sector in South Africa in that I think it, it serves the needs of the wealthy really well, um, but actually I think that at the lower end of the market, the younger end of the market, uh, there's a need, there's some, uh, there's some radical changes in the, in the product, the way it's sold um, and distributed. And I think that's an interesting opportunity for, for us in easy life. Um, I also think that margin lending, lending against a, sec a securities portfolio should be the lowest cost of finance that anyone can get. Um, and so we can displace a large portion of the micro lending market by lending at a much lower rate, let's say 50% of what they're paying or even lower, um, against the equity portfolios responsibly so that it doesn't destroy the investment outcomes that they're seeking. Uh, so we'll, we'll ring fence it to a limited amount of their portfolio. But those are just two examples of products that naturally fit into what we're doing um, because our customers need them and want them uh, and more products will come. So I think that, that it's not just about the businesses that are already in the group. People have to think about what else we can do with this distribution. And that's, that's exciting for me because those that know me well know me, know that the thing that I really enjoy is the innovation, the product development side, um, and then scaling the business opportunity. My team are much better at running everything else. Edward Duplessis asks a question which is related, Charles. Uh, is Easy Equities looking at the private equity market and making private equity yeah. investment accessible to investors? Yeah, great question. And yes, I mean, Crowdfunding, which I would, you know, say is similar to uh, private equity. So crowdfunding is definitely on our agenda. For us, we sort of did the maths around it, and we think we need to have a million investors on our platform. So we're sort of halfway there, I think. Uh, so within the next 18 months, we expect to launch a crowdfunding platform. Um, alongside that, we do help 
the Section 12J guys in raising capital for their sort of private equity vehicles. There's one that's going live, I think, at the end of October from Kalon Ventures, uh, and we'll continue to support that segment as well. So, yes, definitely, private equity is an asset class and sector that I think retail distribution would love access to. You know, it's it's a great example of an asset class that is restricted to the wealthy. I mean, you know, I've never been approached to invest in private equity, and you know, so all the way down, nobody does. So yes, for sure, it's a, and it's one I'm passionate about as well. Because, uh, frankly, raising money in this country is one of the one of the worst tasks uh, I've had the displeasure of having to go to go through. It's, it's really hard to raise money in South Africa. It's not like it is in America. So if we can solve that problem uh, and help VC get funded, um, then yeah, we want to do that. I've got uh, a, a lot of rapid fire questions because it would be good to let Wilhelm and Mark have their last questions as well. And we are running out of time, uh, Charles. So perhaps some quick answers here. Lance Smith says, who's using your platform, male, female, black, white, Indian, etc., And what's the average trade? Yeah, so quickly, 62% uh, male, 38% female, 99% uh, uh, black South Africans, average age 32, average investment, uh, so average portfolio is 30,000 Rand, that's the average portfolio someone's running, but the average investment size is 2,500 Rand per holding. George Rex wants to know, will China come onto the easy equities access map? Yeah, we're looking at it now out of our Australian office. The Aussies also love investing in China. So the demand uh, is, is there. We're looking at how uh, and through whom. Um, and yeah, definitely on our radar. It looks like Hong Kong first. Uh, so Hong Kong, China uh, first, but then China possibly after Hong Kong. Shaman Prem asks, would you recommend that long-term investors use two or more platforms to guard against one going under? I guess uh, he, he's a bit concerned that you might grow too, too rapidly. Yeah, look, I mean, security of assets should be for, forefront for any investor. Uh, we secure the assets by holding them outside of the group. They're in a nominee company, which is ring-fenced. Uh, the balance sheet of a nominee company is ring-fenced from the operations. And so we we can't go we can't, if we go under we cannot do any harm to our customers' assets. Andrew Lake asks. He says, if you have a hundred and sixty thousand rand in global trader investment, would I be better off to cash in and move funds to your Easy Equities USA or Easy Equities Satrix? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not don't really understand the question, but I'll guess at what he's asking. If you're an investor then Easy Equities is a much better destination for your money. If you're a trader, um, then GT247 is a better destination for your money. Hilton Goodhead asks, what's the relationship with Easy.com? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. And Sean Griffiths wants to know, what's the biggest risk for Easy Equity customers? Um, what they invest in. Not, not. Uh, he adds up the if Easy Equities goes pear shaped. No, no. As I said, the assets are ring fenced from the group and held in a nominee. Well, Helen, your final question. Yes, yeah, sure, Charles. I'd be interested. I try. I take. I, I'd understand if it's confidential, and I probably is confidential to some extent. But 
for instance, the terms of the Capitec uh, distribution agreement, like the economic split between Easy Equities and Capitec, what part of that is more valuable? Is it what Easy Equities brings to the table or is it the Capitec distribution network? So in a transaction conducted by a Capitec customer on an Easy Equities platform via the Capitec banking app, does Capitec take the lion's share of the economics and uh, or, or how does that play out? Yeah, um, so firstly and foremostly, Capitec negotiated really hard to ensure that the client benefited um, a lot. So the client benefit is they get a 20% reduction in their transaction fee. So they pay 20% less brokerage. So that's the first point. The balance of the economics are then split between Capitec and Easy Equities, and we get the lion's share uh, of those economics. But isn't that, uh, I mean, I've got a Capitec share account. Uh, and I know you guys are the cheapest in the market already by far. Uh, aren't you then going to find some of those 273,000 account holders, uh, presumably a lot of them are at Capitec, just uh, cutting your brokerage? Yeah, Alec, maybe. Um, and if that means that they, you know, that they get a better experience of our platform, then that's fine. Um, and we, it's, the sensitivity to our brokerage is not as high as you would think. Um, you know, we earn, we earn our economics across the platform at various different transactions. So uh, we're very happy that if that's the outcome, that they all move their banking to Capitec, then that's fine. We think the greater opportunity significantly is the weight of their customers joining. So, you know, let's just say that all customers move to Capitec and as a result, our income goes down, you know, 10, 15 percent. What is the benefit of being having access to all of Capitex customers joining us? And the obvious answer is it's much greater than 10 to 15 percent of our current income. Sorry, Mark, before you pose your last question, this is one I just got to ask you. Is the JSC supporting you in any way? Or if not, are you using other exchanges or, or playing with other exchanges? Because what you're doing has got to be making a, a it is making a huge difference to the future of South African retail investing? Yeah, we've, we've collaborated with the JSC on several retail initiatives. We run, the one that comes to mind is She Invests, which is, a, we work with them to, uh, to do that. And we've done a couple of other things as well. But, you know, we're, not, we're agnostic in terms of where the exchange flows goes. And, and specifically, we actually, we deal through a prime broker and we manage the prime broking relationship and ensure we get the best possible price which we then, you know, uh, pass on to our customers. And then we let the prime broker worry about which exchange at what price um, and where he, where he gets uh, his liquidity from. Hilton Goodhead, by the way, says that the Easy Properties icon on your website links to, to easy.com. That's why he asked the question. So I guess uh, there's somebody there who's, who's just put the wrong link in. Mark, your final question? I think just... Uh, closing remarks, we haven't much time, Alec, but uh, I think a lot of uh, effort um, and innovation is, is really coming through now. I think the partnerships that have been built with the Capitex um, and others uh, of this world uh, are, are certainly coming through and you're judged in life by the company that you keep. And, and clearly there's loyalty there from the growing uh, platform of customers and I think as this is a proudly South African company, we can only wish them well on their way. Nice one, Mark. Nice uh, way to finish off. Before 
before we let you go, Charles, uh, us, you, it's quite obvious that Mark is a is a big fan. We've heard that. I also saw in your breakdown of shareholding that uh, Michael Jordan's Montegre is quite a significant shareholder. So you seem to be making uh, the, the right statements in the right area. Did Michael get a discount on his shares? <laughs> Michael's been a great uh, mentor for me um, in in the last few years. And as a result of that relationship, he's, I guess, gained confidence in, in what we're doing. Uh, he loves easy. He loves the easy story. We've got a great partnership with DCX with him. Um, and I think he sees the world, the future of finance, in a similar way to the way I see it. And so, you know, that's resulted in him taking up a, a very substantial shareholding over the, over the last few years. And no, he paid fair market price. <laughs> Final comment from you, Valenum. No, look, I think I've, it's been very impressive to see how easy equities has grown and, and the accessibility and uh, savings that it brings to the market. So, I mean, all the best to Charles. We'll, we'll certainly be following the story quite closely. It's a fascinating business. Let's see if we can get him uh, on camera just for the last couple of minutes. Uh, yep, there you are. You're back again. Stu, where are we going to be able to access uh, the recording of the webinar? Thanks, Alec, and thanks all. It was great, fantastic discussion. Um, Alec, I put the YouTube link on the chat bar, which is on that control panel, and hopefully in the next hour or two, we'll be able to process the video and get it there. And then the team will obviously trim it apart, et cetera, and cut it up for the audio section on our own. So, yeah. Well, we look forward to that and to hearing more about the exponential story that is Easy Equities. Charles, thanks for joining us today. Good luck with your horse racing uh, endeavors. And uh, from me, Alec Hogg, and our team here at Biz News, thanks to Mark and Wilhelm for posing your questions. We look forward to being back with you next week. Uh, in next week's um, Rational Radio webinar, we have um, Mr. Hudson. What's his first name? from Panda. Uh, no, not no, from Gavin, Panda. Gavin, Gavin sorry. <laughs> just it just uh, uh, lost my mind a minute. Gavin Hudson from Tongart will be with us next week. And then in two weeks' time, we'll have Charles's shareholder, Paul Hanratty from uh, Sunlum. He'll be in studio with us as well. What do you call these things? Is it in studio or uh, oh, certainly on the on the GoToWebinar call? But uh, make a note of those. It's uh, for the next couple of weeks. But as Stuart said earlier, we will have Charles uh, Savage's um, eloquence uh, as well as those of our analysts uh, recorded for posterity on YouTube in the next couple of hours available to you. Thanks again for joining us today. Until the next time, cheerio.